What's up, Revolution? That was weak, but whatever. Um, So tonight we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. Tonight we're going to be talking about doing, right? Uh, The big famous line from this passage is, don't just be a hearer of the word, but be a doer of the word also. Um, So we're going to be hammering down on that. Now, me personally, I'm not a fan of doing things. I'm really not. Um, Like, this is me. If I'm at my mom's house... And I'm sitting in the recliner with her, and she's been watching TV, and she decides to get up and go somewhere for an hour or go down to the basement for whatever to clean. And I realize that she's been watching Lifetime, but she left the remote on the other side of the room. Say what you will about my masculinity, but I'm watching the Golden Girls Marathon for the next hour and a half because I'm not getting up. I I refuse to get up. Um, I've also realized that I hate doing the dishes since I moved out because my darling mother doesn't live with me anymore. I hate doing the dishes with a passion. Um, Like I wake up, I want some cereal, and there's no bowls, there's no spoons, so I'm the white trash survivor. I I pour a glass of milk, and you know, you start eating cereal with your hand and just doing shots of milk behind it because you refuse to do the dishes. No one? Okay. Okay, apparently I'm incredibly lazy. Um... Another thing, and this is probably, you know, some of you might be grossed out, whatever. It's my day off, right? Like, the guys in the ref house can attest to this happening yesterday. Uh, It's my day off. I get up at like 4 a.m. Monday through Friday. Don't feel like doing anything. So what do I do? I wake up. I go downstairs, you know, turn on Netflix, which is awesome. If you don't have it, shame on you. Or I uh, turn on the Xbox and play like some NASCAR that I just got into yesterday. Again, white trash survivor. Um, And I start playing, and the next thing you know, it's 7 p.m., I've not brushed my teeth. I've not taken a shower. I'm still wearing the same boxes that I slept in from the night before because I'm not getting up and I have nowhere to be. That's me. No, am I really grossing everyone out that bad? No. Ladies, thank God that he didn't sovereignly choose you to be with me, but he chose Autumn for that task because this is who I am. Um, But what I'm I'm getting at is we can get away with not doing some things, right? Trivial things. Like the Bible doesn't talk about you have to brush your teeth. Hygiene, dental hygiene is... Neither here nor there in Scripture. Um, but as Christians, there are some things that we can't get away with not doing. Like we are commanded in Scripture to do some things uh, that God's called us to do as a result of our faith in Jesus, right? If we truly have faith in Christ, if we truly accept the Word, if we truly are listening and being taught, then it should create some heart change in us that will affect our action. And that's what James is getting at with this passage. So uh, we're going to be in verses 19 through 27, and this is kind of a long text, so bear with me if I go a little bit longer than usual. Um, Verse 19, understand this, my dear brothers and sisters, you must all be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, a lot of people think that that first verse is just like a proverb, like just don't talk so much, um, listen a lot, and don't get angry. Within the context, what James is talking about, although that's good general advice, I mean, that's mimicking something that's actually in the book of Proverbs, um, he's talking about having a teachable spirit, right? Listen more than you talk. You have two ears, so you should listen twice as much as you talk. That's a good saying I found out. Um, it's, It's being teachable and not being angry. Be slow to anger whenever the word, whenever scripture tells you something about yourself that you don't like. Because human anger will not produce righteousness, so, so what, he, what he's getting at is be a teachable person. Whenever the word of God challenges you, don't be upset. Just accept it. So if, that's, if being angry is not going to produce righteousness, what 
will. And James go on, goes on to say in 21, So get rid of all the filth and evil in your lives, and humbly accept the word God has planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save your souls. So if anger won't make us righteous, what will? Well, the first thing he says is you need to get rid of the filth and evil in your life. And what's kind of cool is this word for filth in Greek is rupos, and it can mean, in a medical sense, earwax. Right? So we're supposed to listen to the word. Anything that's keeping you from hearing the word, get rid of it. And what's going to do that? The evil in your life. Sin in your life. Because sin, whenever we choose to do our own thing, we make ourselves God. We start to idolize relationships. We idolize money. We idolize our kids, whatever it may be. And it drives a wedge between us and the one true God. It makes us deaf to his word. It hardens our hearts and makes us not receptive. So what do we do after we... So after we get rid of whatever's keeping us uh, from, from listening to the word... We need to humbly accept the word that God has planted in our hearts because it has the power to save our souls. And this word humbly accept is actually an untranslatable word. It's pretty cool. It it carries this connotation of someone that has a temperament of self-control, that isn't angry, that has no prejudices against truth, that's able to face truth whenever they hurt, whenever the truth hurts, rather. Um, This is someone with a teachable spirit. So what does he say? What's going to produce righteousness? Listen to the word, get rid of whatever stands in between you and God, and humbly accept in a teachable spirit whatever the word tells you, even when you don't like it. Because whenever you let that word guide you, there's life there. Life as God intended you to have. And there's salvation in the gospel. Like the big W word, right? So he's he's covered how we're supposed to hear the word. Um, you know, and what we're supposed to do with that, that we're supposed to learn, we're supposed to humbly accept, and that's supposed to put some heart change in us, right? It's going to save our souls whenever we listen to the word. Uh, but then he says, but don't just listen to God's word, verse 22. You must do what it says, otherwise you're only fooling yourself. So here's where the rubber meets the road. He's told us how we're supposed to accept the word. He's told us what the word's supposed to do for us, but don't just listen. You must do what it says. Don't merely listen to God's word. Listening is fine, But if you're not doing anything with what you've learned, then what you've learned is worthless. You're only fooling yourself. And I think what James means by that is if you come away with no heart change, no doing, nothing in your life has changed, you've just learned a lot about the Bible, and you've treated the Bible like a textbook, like a lot of us are prone to do. Um, Many like young and upcoming theologians like myself, that's what we're prone to do, is treat it like a book instead of God's word. And we come away with no doing, we're fooling ourselves because we can't be saved and have no good deeds to show for it. We have to do the word. Church attendance and studying scripture does not make you a Christian. Just like me sitting in a garage all day doesn't make me a car. Coming here doesn't make you a Christian. Reading your Bible doesn't make you a Christian if you have nothing to show in your life from it. Verse 23, he uses this this awesome analogy about a mirror. He says, for if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. So what James is is saying on this is the word of God is a mirror, right? It shows us what we are. It shows us what's wrong with us. It shows us that we're in need of a savior. And even after we come to faith in Jesus Christ, it shows us that there's all kinds of things that we need that need changed in us that we need to start doing and stop doing so we can be conformed to Jesus even more, so that we can begin to look like Jesus. So whenever we look into Scripture, whenever we look into what the Bible teaches us and then come away with nothing changed about us, we're like someone who looks in a mirror, sees how ugly they are, and then doesn't try to do anything to fix it. 
doesn't try to do anything to improve their appearance at all. These people are listeners that hear the word, but they don't contemplate on it. They don't let it guide them, like he says, to humbly accept and let it guide. They just treat it like that's another notch in my belt. It's another thing for me to learn. Got that moving on. They don't have any change from it. But, verse 25, if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. Now, what is this perfect law that sets us free? This perfect law is the law summed up by Jesus. Love God and love your neighbor. All right, and, and hear me out on this, because it sounds kind of legalistic, right? If you do the law, you'll be saved is what this sounds like. Um, so hear me out, and we're going to come back to this later towards the end. Um, but for now, loving God only comes from faith in Jesus, right? The Bible teaches us that we are hostile to God from birth, and that until we come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we want nothing to do with God. We don't love him. In fact, we are hateful rebels against him. So loving God comes from faith in Jesus. And then whenever we love God, we'll obey his commands because Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commands. And loving God and obeying him always results in us loving our neighbor. That's how God's law is designed to be. You know, he's a God. The Trinity is in communion with one another. They're loving one another. So to obey his law automatically means that we will love one another. And this all comes out as a result of faith in Jesus. So this is how this perfect law sets us free also is through faith in Christ, we are no longer a slave to sin. We're no longer a slave to the punishment that awaits us for our sin. And if we do what it says, we'll be blessed. And that blessing isn't in this life. We know that's not true because James was one of the most faithful Christians and he was stoned to death, thrown off a temple, beaten to death. Um, Paul had his head cut off. We know that this blessing is not talking about now, but that this blessing is future. This blessing is your salvation. So if you do the word, if you've come to faith in Jesus, you'll be saved. And coming to faith results in doing, obeying the law. And then here's where we're going to camp uh, for a good bit now. Verses 26 and 27. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So this word religion is actually closer to worship. So James is saying true worship, you can can gauge whether or not you're truly worshiping the one true God if you've truly come to faith by these three things that he lists. And it's kind of like a a test, if you will. Um, Three ways to do the word. And the first one is control your tongue. And God help me. Anyone else? Anyone else have a huge... If anyone's talked to me for like 15 minutes, you understand like, I, this is something that I struggle with a lot. Like, uh, like I grew up, um, and I, I, was, I was like the, the weird fat kid that was into, like, Magic the Gathering and, like, Dungeons and Dragons and, like, weird stuff like that. So I got picked on a fair amount. And then when I came to love heavy metal and playing music and joined the marching band, that really upped my street cred. Um, but that was me. I got picked on a fair amount. And, like, my mom's um, second husband, me and him, didn't get along. And I had to learn to have a thick skin and be able to come back quickly um, or cry. And I don't, I'm not a fan of, of crying. So I struggle with this a lot. Um, not tearing people down with my speech. So whenever he says, control your tongue, I just want to clear the air on this one. Uh, controlling your tongue has nothing to do with the seven words you can't say on television. Has nothing to do with cussing at all. And if you want to talk to me about that after the service because you disagree, feel free to come talk to me. We can. But I think that James is going way, way deeper than that. And the reason why I can say that 
it's not just certain words, is because if you look at Scripture in its original language, in its original context, God says some stuff, Jesus says some stuff, Paul says some stuff, that's shocking. You run through the book of Ezekiel, run through Isaiah, run through, like in Philippians 3.8, John, or not John, Paul says that before I came to faith in Jesus, I, my life was rubbish. And that word rubbish actually translates to the S word in our society. So we know it's not the words that we choose to use, but rather how we choose to use our words. So what should our speech look like if it says we shouldn't have corrupt speech, we shouldn't have uncontrolled speech? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul kind of lays it out, and I'll give you the highlights of it. He says our speech should be encouraging, it should be good and helpful. It should be for building people up, not tearing people down. It should be true. And sometimes Christians get a little bit uh, excited whenever we get to call people out on stuff that they're doing wrong, and we go, oh, it's just the truth, but we've got to remember, Galatians tells us to be graceful and be humble whenever we're telling people truth. Um, but what shouldn't our speech look like? In Ephesians, it says not to be abusive or slander people, or be bitter or be full of rage, that we should be kind to one another, like God has been kind to us through Jesus. So that's what our speech should look like. It's a lot deeper than just some words. It's how we talk to people. It's, are you tearing people down with your speech, or are you building people up? Are you talking down to someone? Because if your speech is full of gossip and slander, you show that you really don't understand how wicked you are and how badly you sinned against God and that God doesn't hold that against you anymore. So who are you to go and talk badly about someone else or what they've done to you or someone else? If your speech is characterized by hatred we can go to 1 John and see that if you hate your brother or sister that the love of God's not in you. Right? How can you hate someone else for something they've done to you whenever all you've done to God, he's chosen to love you and forgive you anyway? If your speech is characterized by complaining, griping all the time, you really show that you don't know anything about God's sovereignty. You don't want to let God be God. You want to be in control of your situation instead of letting God rule as he sees fit and learning something from your situation. You'd just rather complain about it. This is what our speech shouldn't be. And furthermore, we've all been created in the image of God. And we should talk to one another accordingly. Right? So that's the kind of speech that I think James is getting at here. Because if our, if our speech is nothing but gossip, slander, hatred, complaining, it's no better than idolatry. It's worthless. Right? We're idolizing what we would like to say over what God tells us how to speak to people. So control your tongue. And the second thing that James tells us um, is, like, is a test to know if your religion is true, if you've truly come to faith, and a way to do the word is to help the helpless. He says, care for the widows and the orphans in their distress. Now, what you need to know about that is widows and orphans uh, were the lowest of the low in their culture. They, their backs were completely up against the wall. They had no one to turn to. They had nowhere. And that's because women had to have a man around to get anything done. He was their provider. So if your husband dies and there's no one in his family to remarry you, like Old Testament law says they should, now you, your options are to be a prostitute or to beg. If you're a child and both your parents die, now your options are to be a prostitute or a beggar or a thief. Like those, that's, that's all you got going for you. So what do these people that have no options look like for us? Well, we still have prostitutes. We still have widows that need taken care of. 
Um, we have drug addicts that need taken care of, that need love, that have no options, that even if they've ruined their own lives, they still need help. We have people that don't have any friends, that have nowhere to turn to, no one to help them. These are the helpless that James is telling us that we need to go after in our culture. And why would he say that, though? I think he's saying that because ever since God chose a people for himself, and we're his chosen people, we're a continuation of Israel, he's declared that we are to give aid to people in need. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, God says that he is a God that shows no partiality, that he ensures justice to the orphans and the widows, and he shows love to the foreigners. And because of that, we too have to show love to the same kinds of people that need help. And he says some, some other cool stuff. He says uh, in that same chapter, God says, whenever you went to Egypt, there were only seven, 70 of you. But whenever I brought you out, you're now as numerous as the stars. So I think what God's saying there is don't forget where you come from. And I don't mean that in like a hood, get rich or die trying, 50 cent kind of way. Like don't forget where you came from in the sense you are a sinner. You were under the wrath of God. You were an outsider. You were separated from God. And yet he chose to shower you with special love and affection and choose you to, to be saved. So how could you not look at someone and want to shower with them with that same kind of undeserved love and affection? Even if they've put themselves in that, in, in that situation that requires them to need help. Because true religion changes how we treat people. Truly coming to faith in Jesus changes how we treat people because we have a holy mandate that Jesus gave us himself to take care of the least of these. That's what we're going to be judged on ultimately. So how could we receive God's grace and then not turn around and want to give it back to people? So what does this look like for us? And get ready because I'm going to hammer this. I've been hammering it every week and I'm going to keep going. Trash pickup on Tuesdays at 6 o'clock with me. Um, East End ministry stuff on Friday. We do a cookout at 5, I do believe. Five, I'm still new to the whole thing. Uh, we got free market. Get involved is what I'm saying. We do the Father's Table on Friday nights. Get involved somewhere. Start doing something. You don't really have an option here. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. And I command you to go out and take care of people that need help. We don't have an option. And furthermore, you don't have to wait for the, the church to tell you what to do. Stop for the dude holding a sign on 52 or 23. Stop. You see someone... Walking around, pull over, ask, you know, can, I, can I help you with anything? You look like you might need something. I know it sounds crazy, but you'd be surprised how grateful people are and how much that, that they just need someone to talk to. Don't be afraid, just do it. Use some wisdom there, right? But go for it, man. The church doesn't have to tell you what to do. Sponsor a kid, pray for people. Start getting off your butt and actually going and, and doing something because... Our religion is worthless if it doesn't push us to help people. I think that's what James is getting at here, so get involved. And the last thing James tells us is to refuse to be corrupted by the world. And this one, I'm not going the PSA route where I tell you all, don't have sex before you're married and don't get drunk, which is all like true, but like I'm not going that route. Um, I'm not going to give you a laundry list of things you can't do. Uh, I think, again, James goes deeper than that. No, I'm not discrediting that stuff. There are holiness standards we have to maintain. Don't, I'm not crazy. Um, but whenever James says, refuse to be corrupted by the world, I think he's talking about our mentality. Um, like that the world is, or these ungodly worldviews and perceptions and mentalities that are pushed on us. 
on all sides. So the best way for us to fight that is to know the word, to learn the word, and the way that we take that and do it whenever he says don't be corrupted is to use scripture to fight unbiblical mentalities that our culture throws on us. And just a couple of those, what those look like is, is, you know, we take this unbiblical notion of love that our culture throws on us. That love, you can fall in love, you can fall out of love, that there's the one um, that, you know, for guys, that like, your wife has to be just like a 10 model. And if she's good looking, okay, and you find someone that's hotter, you can leave her for the next person because that's what love's about is physical attraction. Uh, our culture tells us that love is this, I can't breathe whenever you're not around and I just, I can't do anything but think about you and I, I ache whenever I can't see, which I don't know, maybe some of you feel that way sometimes, but that's not in the Bible. That's not what the Bible teaches us that love is. The Bible teaches us that love is a choice. It's a commitment that you make, uh, that marriage is a commitment before God that can't and shouldn't be broken. Um, that we choose to love people. You don't fall into love. You choose to love them and you don't fall out of love. You choose to stop loving them. That love is wanting to serve somebody forever. And love is not wanting, not caring about what you get out of the deal, but that you just want to love them and serve them, which is completely counter to what our culture tells us. So if you know the word and you have that in your mind, you can mentally fight all this crap that the world's throwing at us. And I think that's what James is getting at. Another one um, is contentment, right? Our world, our world tells us to never settle. That there's always more. There's always something else that we can get. Um, there's always a bigger bank account, a better car, a hotter spouse, a bigger house. I sound like Dr. Seuss. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was funny for me. Uh, I didn't mean to do that. Uh, but there's always more that we can get. But the Bible tells us, like Paul says, I find myself content with everything. You know, God is sovereign. I'm content with my lot. He says, whenever I have no food, I'm, I'm content. Whenever I have food, I'm content. When I have a place to stay, I'm content. When I'm homeless, I'm content because I have Jesus and Jesus has taken my punishment for sin. What else can I ask for? So whenever we know scripture, that one of the ways that we can do the word is to actually use that to fight ungodly mentalities. And I think that that's what James means whenever he says, refuse to be corrupted by the world. So we have to constantly work to distance our thinking and actions from the way of life that's around us. And I'm not saying to hole up in a bunker and only eat at Chick-fil-A and only listen to K-Love and only like watch Daystar. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is mentally we have to fight. Because if our religion doesn't change our thinking, it's worthless because our thinking eventually turns into our actions. God wants heart change from us. But I said that we were going to take a look at verse 25 again. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, we look back at verse 25 and we see that it says, if you look into the perfect law that sets us free and do what it says, we'll be saved. So this sounds a little bit legalistic, but I don't think it is. So this perfect law is love God and love your neighbor. So if we look into this perfect law and do what it says, we'll be saved. Well, what does this law look like? This law looks like Jesus, Period. Jesus loved God so much that he carried out his will to save us. And he loved us, his neighbor, so much that he came and died on our behalf for our sin. And, and here's what I mean by that. This is, this is the greatest, if you've not listened, if I've bored you, whatever, pay attention now. This is the best part. All right, Jesus is the embodiment of the perfect law, to love God and love your neighbor. Jesus loves God the Father. God the Father loves Jesus 
Jesus loves God's justice. All right, and God's justice tells us that we are sinners and that we have rebelled against God and that we, because of our glad rebellion, deserve hell. God is eternally good, eternally pure, eternally innocent. So for us to sin against him, for us to try to take his throne and be our own God and do our own thing is the worst crime we could possibly commit. And every one of us has has committed that crime. So now we deserve the most awful punishment, and that's hell. That's eternal damnation, eternal punishment. And Jesus is okay with that. Jesus loves God's justice. God says, they sin, someone must pay for what they've done. And Jesus says, yeah, I agree. I love your justice. I love you. Jesus also loves God's mercy because God is the embodiment of mercy as well. And in God's mercy, he says, I love them and justice must be done, but I do not want them to be damned for eternity. And Jesus says, I love you. I love your mercy. I don't want them to be damned either. And Jesus, because he loves God, he loves us because God loves us because justice must be served. Jesus loves that. And because God is merciful, Jesus says, I will go and I will pay their justice because I love you and I love your justice, but I love your mercy. So I will be the culmination of both of those things. And Jesus does just that. He comes to earth. He lives a sinless life for for all the times that, that we follow our own way for for all the times that we talk down to people, for all the times that we drive by the homeless person on the street, for all the time that we allow the world to corrupt our thought and, and eventually corrupt our own action. Jesus takes all that sin on himself. And because it wasn't his sin, he, he, didn't even, he didn't deserve to die. He had never sinned, but he takes our sin on himself and he says, God, I love you, I love your justice, and it poured out on me instead of them. I'm here to die in their place as a substitute. So Jesus goes to the cross and suffers our punishment, suffers the very wrath of God, suffers hell on the cross for us. And then three days later, God raises Jesus from the dead to prove that that sacrifice was perfect and pure. And now if we come to faith in Jesus, we owe God nothing. The justice has been served on our behalf. Because God's love and God's mercy was shown because Jesus is the embodiment of the law to love God and love your neighbor. So if we look into the law, we see the face of Jesus. We see Jesus taking our punishment, being beaten, mocked, humiliated, crucified, suffering the very wrath of God for our salvation. Whenever we look into the perfect law that sets us free, that's what we see. Jesus sets us free. He sets us free from our punishment. He sets us free from our sinful nature. We're no longer a slave to sin, but now we're a slave to righteousness if we come to faith in him. So how could we know that? Say we believe it. Say we love him because of that and then not want to do what he's told us to do. It's completely inconsistent. Jesus wants consistency from his followers. He says, if you believe that I've done that for you, then out of gratitude, I want you to do the word, to to not just do word studies, to not just read theology and doctrine books, to not just go to seminary, to not just learn as much as possible, but to actually do what I've told you to do. Because you love me, because you truly believe. Because if you love me, you'll obey my commands. 
So what I'm saying is do the word out of gratitude. If you call yourself a Christian, if you say you believe that message that Jesus died in your place for your sin, go and do. You don't have an option. James says if you don't do, then you're fooling yourselves. So if we do this perfect law that sets us free, we'll be saved. And I think that that's because if we are saved, we will love God and want to obey his commands. So James can say if you do the law, you'll be saved because without faith in Jesus, you will not do the law. I think that's what James is getting at in that verse. So if you do the law, you will be saved, but you're only going to do the law if you love Jesus. And that's a test. That's a huge one. Are you obeying Jesus? Because if you're not, if you have no deeds to show, then you are lying to yourself. You may be able to quote scripture, you may know more theology than anyone in this room, but if you have nothing to show in your life, if you have no good deeds, if you're not physically trying to help people, if you're not sharing the gospel with people on a regular basis, then you are lying to yourself. And you still stand condemned for your sin. And there's a response to this now. If any of you in here haven't placed your faith in Jesus, I believe, just believe. That's all that the Bible says. It says that if we, if we confess that we're sinners and that we need a Savior and we believe that Jesus died in our place for our sin and was resurrected, that's it. All we have to do is believe. And as a, and as a result of believing that, this gratitude, we begin to follow Jesus and do what he says. So, you know, if you want to know more about what that means to follow Jesus or have Jesus um, stand in between you and God and pay for your sin, um, come talk to me after the service. I'll be standing right here, or you can talk to Brady and AJ. They'll be over here by the couch. Feel free. But there is a response. Either Jesus took your justice or you're going to have to take your justice. That's how it is. And you don't want to because you don't want to go to hell. But Christians, it's gut check time, right? Are you just going to church? Are you just reading your Bible and coming away with nothing? That's the question you have to ask yourself. What are you doing? Are you doing the word? Because if we've received the grace from God through Jesus Christ that we claim we have, then doing the word should come out of gratitude. Now, I don't want you guys to get involved in the East End. I don't want you guys to start doing Father's Table. I don't want you guys to get involved with free market. I don't want you guys to start giving your money because you think I'm going to be mad at you if you don't. Or because David just spent 35 minutes barking at us that we need to go do stuff. Do it out of gratitude for what Jesus has done for you or don't do it at all. There's absolutely no point if it's not for Jesus' honor and Jesus' glory and you doing anything that I've told you that you need to do tonight. If it's not for Jesus' glory and Jesus alone, there's no point in doing it. So don't do it because I've told you to. Do it because you're a Christian, because you believe the gospel and because you love Jesus more than anything. Do the word because you love Jesus and because you truly believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Um, Thank you for the fact that it, it is a mirror to us that shows us how wicked we are and how much we are in need of Jesus. Thank you for the fact that, it, that in your word, in that same word that tells us how awful we are, it tells us how we can be saved because of what your son has done for us already. God, I thank you for the challenges that the word gives us, that, that the word tells us that if, if we're saved, that we should respond out of gratitude, God. And I pray that you give us 
to gratitude. I pray that you, you really make the gospel real to us and make us understand exactly what Jesus has done for us so that we can go out and serve other people. And we can do it all to the glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Because you're worth it. You're worth all of our effort. You're worth all of our time. You're worth all of our sacrifice. You're worth all of our praise and all of our worship. God, just make the gospel real to us so that we can respond in gratitude. Father, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Amen.